Jesus' final night with his disciples. And these are his final words to them. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't understand now, but after these things you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Skipping down to verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Finishing off in 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage, for your tenderness with your disciples, your delight in them, your desire to see them shaped and formed and full of your Spirit. Lord, we long for the same things. And we pray that even as this word comes, that you would use my words and the meditations of my heart to shape and confront and heal and restore us. Do these things in your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we begin our summer together uh, with Nate on sabbatical, I uh, chose to go out of order in preaching John, and we're going to take a little detour and drive up Chuckanut instead of taking I-5. Uh, so I, I think we're actually at a very important moment in our church. Uh, we are at a, a, a crucial time of transition. I think most of us have been attracted to the church from its infancy uh, up to now, largely because of connection with the walkers, uh, because of Nate's preaching, because of Nate's character, or Nate meeting with us, and that's a good thing. In fact, as a church plant, it was essential that 
is exactly how the church was meant to grow. But there's a lurking danger that comes with this, a cultural danger. And it's this, that we begin to start thinking that being connected at Christ Church, being cared for, being loved, being known, means being cared for by Nate. Or having Nate, or in some cases me, having them connect with you, having him care for you. I don't think that's healthy for a church. Here's why. It puts an undue amount of pressure and hope on the shoulders of one guy while we all ignore each other. The reality is that this summer we will feel the absence of Nate. We will. And uh, some of you right now, even as I'm preaching, are starting to feel the absence of Nate. (laughs) He leaves a huge void, and we can't avoid that fact. But given the fact that I'm not Nate and I will not try to be Nate, and I'm certainly not two people, or able to work two jobs, that void will be felt. There will be people who need meeting with. There will be pieces of leadership and administration that someone ought to have spearheaded, which will fall through the cracks. That will happen this summer. There are things that I usually take care of that I will actually set down, because I've taken on other responsibilities. We will feel his absence. And I don't intend to work 80 hours a week and try and overcompensate for that absence. I intend for us as a community to feel it. The question for us is, what will we do then in response? What will we do in response? Let me give a little illustration. When I teach my kids how to bike, uh, one of the funnest things, also a lot of work, I, I hold onto their handlebars and we run along because I want them in their body to feel what it is to balance and to understand how their speed and momentum helps them stay afloat. And, you know, it's cute. They, especially early on, they would hold on to my hands and look at me while I'm running and say, I'm doing it, Daddy! <laughs> it was adorable. Um, and, of course, and, and they're right. They were starting to do it. But as they began to actually learn, and I took my hands off the handlebars, they would often reach back for me. And, of course, they would because they know what's about to happen. They know they're about to crash. They know that they will fail. They know that they will come home with scuffed knees and it's going to be painful. So they want me to stay with them the whole time, to have me do it for them, but I don't. I don't. And there's nothing wrong with them being in that learning stage at all. It's a wonderful, delightful stage. But I want to let go so they can start writing on their own. But what I really, really want, what I really long for, is them riding alongside with me. That is way better. Way better. So much more fun to have two little competent biker dudes to tool around with than me holding them the whole time, even though it's a delightful stage. We are at a moment in our church where it's time for us to grow out of the training wheels, out of the hand-holding, into riding alongside each other in ministry. That means we will crash, we will fail. Absolutely. But crashing is part of learning. What I mean to say is that each of us ought to seek ways to serve and care for each other. And this is not a judgment against us. It is entirely appropriate and right for us to have periods where we are growing and having our hands held. I like the cute toddler stage. It's adorable. But it is so much better when we get to ride together. There is so much Hope, so much potential for deeper joy and to see the Lord do more powerful things in our midst if we all 
begin to embrace our role in this body and begin to take ownership of the ministry God himself is doing in our midst. So today, I just want to take some time to give a vision of where we could be this summer, but also really where I'd like us to continue to be even after Nate gets back. I'd like it to be felt for Nate. I don't have anything left to do because this church has really stepped up. That would be a delight. So we're going to pick up in John 13 where Jesus turns all his attention to his disciples and he gives them this model for their ministry and life together even as he prepares to leave them. So we're going to reflect on four things this morning. We are made for a communion of love first. Secondly, that loving communion comes through being hospitable. Third, that loving communion comes through receiving service. Fourth, that loving communion comes through hope. The reason why I want to talk about these things is because I long for more. I think you all long for more as well. I think John 13 sets the path for us. So let's go to John 13. Our first point, we are made for a communion of love. You see this in Jesus, verse 1. Having loved his disciples, he loved them to the end. Uh, You can't get past that word in this passage. We all know this is what we're made for. This is part of the very fabric of the world itself. Uh, Because, you know, when Jesus says the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself, what's he saying about a meaningful life? It's one that's lived out in a communion of love with God and with other people. That is humanity at its fullest. God himself has actually been up to this kind of loving communion even before he made the world. This is what the Trinity means, that the Father pours out all of his affection and attention onto the Son who gladly receives it and then pours out his own love to the Father by the Spirit. And so you have this community of love that stands behind the world. The world is the way it is because of who God is. Namely, he is a God of love. So what it means for us is that we are made to share in that love. Even as Nate was talking last week about this, that we could step into the communion that Jesus has with his Father and feel what he feels and say to the Lord the things that Jesus says, but also importantly today, to actually do what Jesus does. Jesus makes this very explicit in verse 34 and 35. Just as I have loved you all, the disciples, you all ought to love one another. And so in saying that, just as the Father has loved the Son, so in turn we are to love our neighbors. Verse 20, actually, I don't know if you caught the pattern here. It's all over in the Gospel of John, but especially in this passage. Verse 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father, now he sends us. That is to say, loving others through service and hospitality is not an add-on to church. It's what church is. Loving hospitality is not an add-on to church. It's what church is because this is who God is. And that's what he's doing by bringing us in to his communion. So we're not called to love and service because it's a good thing and we approve of it. We are called to love and service because we are called into God's own loving communion, the great reality that shapes the world, and that is why we long for it. Sadly, 
we often miss the opportunity to actually enter into that kind of loving communion because we are waiting for someone else to offer it to us. Um, I'll give you an example of this. I am someone who does not like traffic. Uh, I know you all love traffic, getting stuck in traffic. I don't. Uh, that's why I ride my bike so much. I have my own lane, and I can cut around people and uh, pass anyone I want. But when I am driving, I'm particularly impatient <laughs> and uh, grumpy. And my wife can attest to this. Uh, so on my better days, you know, when I'm really stuck, uh, I, you know, I sigh and grumble. Um, but I'm always trying to squeeze past people, take the back roads. What's the best way to avoid all these people clogging up the road, you know, out there? Finally, my wife has been watching me do this for years. <laughs> so she says to me, the thing that's obvious that I missed, hey, hon, uh, you don't like the traffic, do you? Mm-mm. Don't like it. Okay, good. Uh, honey, you are the traffic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are the traffic. I am frustrated about something because I am in the same place doing the same thing as the people, people I'm frustrated with. You are the traffic. We are the traffic. And to apply it to our passage today, you are the church. This is it. This is the real church. We are it, friends. And so the church, the things that we long for from the church, the things that we like to see among Christ's church, guess what? We're it. So, that means that we are called to contribute and labor to bring about the very things that we long for in our community. To be the thing that we actually long to see. It's, it's funny because when we approach groups, we, we have a, a, a standard way of doing it that keeps the expectations outside of us and conveniently excludes, uh, excuses us from taking responsibility on. But the irony here is that in doing that, we actually exclude ourselves from the very loving communion that we long for by avoiding serving. It's a tremendous irony. We long for communion and so we want someone else to help us with it and to make a communion for us and yet we actually exclude ourselves by not serving. And that's our second point. How do we get about this communion? How does it come about? Communion comes through being hospitable. Communion comes through being hospitable. What does it mean to be hospitable? I just want to take a, one second here. Hospitality is very different from entertainment. I, was, uh, I worked in restaurants for years. That's an entertainment industry. Hospitality is very different. Entertaining is the opposite because entertainment focuses on the things that I have to offer you, the objects that I have to present, fancy food, fancy beers, my house, the activities I can provide. All the while... Not offering what? Myself. Not knowing you more deeply. Not welcoming you in, not hearing where you're at. Hospitality, however, on the other hand, is opening a door to outsiders into the community life you share with others, into the joys of the community life you have with other people, into the mess of your community life as well. That is hospitality. And that could be you opening the communal life you have with your kids. Come play a board game with us. Your spouse, your roommates, or with your friends. True hospitality is offering some piece of yourself to another person through tangible means of service. Often food. 
because it's a gift. Hospitality is the whole setting of this passage. It's a feast. In fact, John is organized around events of hospitality. Holy feasts. You have Passovers and the Feast of Tabernacles. The whole book is organized around feasts. And that's because sitting at a table in someone's home, sharing food, is a fundamental act of human love. The reason for that is that hospitality is the story of the world. Think about this for a second. God made a world in which there exist blueberries and oysters and morel mushrooms and steak and mountains and trees and beautiful things. And he, in particular, made this garden in which he placed Adam and Eve. But most of all, in which he placed what? Himself. He came and dwelt with them. And so it it makes perfect sense that the thing we really long for is actually to have this kind of communion with the God who made the world because this is how the, the world was made. The world is made to be a place of hospitality. And that's the gospel too. Jesus tells us that he did not come to be served, but what? To seek and serve the lost. And that's the only reason we have a relationship with him at all in the first place. I was lost. And Jesus found me and he brought me in. It's beautiful. This is the story of our lives. He first washed and baptized us, but then he actually continues to serve us. The God of the universe, who died in our place, not only pays for our sins and washes and restores us, but continues to care for us as if he were our servant. He continually pours out his love on us, and that is the gospel. Actually, that's part of the gospel. Let me read to you verses 12 through 16, the other part of the gospel. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Hospitality is the story of who we are as a people. And it's actually the story of our worship. I don't know if you've thought about this much with our liturgy, but we this call to worship where God calls you in, and then he sits and he listens to you. He listens to your prayers, and he listens to your songs, and he hears, actually, the terrible things that have happened to your life, your sins, even the ways that you've offended him, and he gives you grace and he pardons you, and then he unites you into a people, and you experience the fullness of that community, and then he speaks tenderly to you and receives your response of love in return as you offer yourself back to him. And the whole liturgy and hospitality of God culminates in a meal where he gives you himself, his own body and blood, and sends you out to actually extend that same hospitality into the world. That is the gospel. The whole gospel. Not just that Jesus has loved me, but that he has loved me so that now I'm actually dignified and equipped to go and love others so that we could serve each other and in so doing, create real loving communion. This is um, Jesus' whole ministry model. This is his strategic vision for ministry. Uh, I say that because verse 15, when it says, I gave you an example, that word is actually more like prototype or like 
uh, or model, right? Jesus is saying, brothers, here's how you do it. Here is the prototype for strategic, cutting-edge ministry. Hospitable cross-bearing. Hospitable cross-bearing. Welcoming in those whom he has welcomed. That's a beautiful thing. How does that actually create community? Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Jesus rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is uh, the menial task of a servant. If you came into a wealthy person's house, they would have a servant who would do this for them. Uh, I'll just say we were in Africa in January, and it was a great reminder to me of how important this job is. Um, I don't know if you've ever been other places, but if you have a lot of animals around, they tend to leave something behind on the road, right? If you have horses and donkeys and uh, cows, there's lots of poop on the ground. It's just around all the time. And if you're walking on dirt roads in sandals all day, it gets on you, okay? <laughs> right? It's in your feet, especially, that's during the dry season. Let's talk about the rainy season. It doesn't wash away. It becomes the road, okay? So you're walking around in sandals. By the end of the day, it's not like, well, my feet are a tad sweaty. No, they are caked. <laughs> They're caked. And you feel like a contaminant in your own home, in your own skin, right? So it's a, it's a lovely thing to come into someone's house and for them to wash your feet. It's also a very intimate thing. Think about the concreteness of this act. Jesus held in his hands, skin to skin, the calloused and dirt-caked feet of other men and washed them one by one. Think of that. He is touching, he is touching with his hands the foulest part of their bodies. This is an extremely intimate job. And so in Jesus wants to have his love finally sink in, what's the job he chooses? Foot washing. Why? Well, because in doing this job, he gets to be involved in the daily mess. He gets to be involved in those dirty places you'd rather ignore. He gets to be in the mess of his disciples' lives. And in doing this job, he gets to know and love each of his disciples one by one because he does serve them in this intimate way. And we miss we miss this because uh, we miss how life-giving it is to serve each other in these tangible and menial ways. I'll just tell you, uh, in seminary, we lived in St. Louis, which is a great place to be poor, and we were. We were dirt poor. Uh, we, uh, I worked part-time in a restaurant, and we were on food stamps and government health care, which I was so thankful for. And we even got some help from families uh, back here in the Northwest that had supported us while we were in missions. The car I drove was a uh, hand-me-down uh, seminary car, which there was like a whole fleet of hand-me-down cars at seminary, limped along from one student to another. And uh, this one had 200,000 miles on it, and uh, it had a sunroof that would dump water on you after a hard rain, right? <laughs> it would uh, pile up in there. And it was constantly overheating. Um, so... Thankfully, our church was a good place to be if you were a mess and a needy person. It was such a great thing. Our church was largely made up of refugees, poor seminary students, and then just plain old poor folk from the south side of St. Louis. Uh, but that community shined. It was a delight. Here's why. They understood 
and poured themselves into deeds of love. Every aspect of their life together was wrapped around and mapped around showing mercy, being merciful, being in each other's lives where there is mercy needed. So, and not just in, among themselves, but also their neighborhood. I mean, man, they were out all the time. One of the ministries they had was a car work day. A couple guys in the church who actually knew what they were doing with cars would show up at the church, have all their tools, and they'd say, um, bring your cars if you need working on, and we will teach you how to work on your car. It's awesome. I mean, the number of people who were able to keep their jobs and keep their car running, uh, huge. Uh, I was one of those people uh, who was very hesitant to go, even though my car had been overheating over and over and over. Uh, I was very hesitant to go and to receive this help. So after some convincing, I finally went, and uh, funny enough, one of my friends was there, Sean Lofton, great guy. We had become friends uh, hanging out on Sunday mornings, you know, being grumpy old men together and chatting and hanging out. We had kids the same age. But that was about it. Uh, We were friends, uh, but we never had served together. And so our friendship actually only revolved around being entertained together. We had common interests, absolutely. Common interests around our entertainment. So we had not yet become hospitable to each other in this deep sense. So I show up. Sean sits with me. We talk about the car, we look in there, we start reaching our hands in, and we work on this car together. He assesses the problem, lets me go use his car to purchase parts. While I'm gone, he's crawling around in my car, disconnecting my radiator, getting rust and old uh, radiator fluid on his hands and getting cuts. Come back, we finish working on the car together, we work on the brakes, and the whole time, he's teaching me, he's helping me with my mistakes, and we're just talking about our life. I was blessed to have my car worked on, first off. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. No more limping from gas station to gas station. Much more than that. Much better than that. I got a deep friendship with this brother. We went from entertainment to hospitality. It was a blessing to have him enter into the dirty, menial, and actually, frankly, embarrassing parts of my life and not be annoyed or burdened. I didn't feel like a project. I felt like his friend. I could trust him from now on with the other dirty, menial things of my life. Community was created by him serving me. So I said I was hesitant and that it was embarrassing to be there. Uh, Why? Well, first off, my dad worked on cars. I grew up helping my dad work on cars. I felt like I should probably be able to figure this out, you know? I have the resources, the abilities. Also, I'm this white kid from a middle-class home. I'm getting my master's degree. Why? I should have like worked harder, taken on an extra shift and planned more and saved more. You know, I, why didn't I manage this better? There's people in our community who are way more needy than I am. They just literally got off the boat from Nepal from a refugee camp, and I'm being served? I was embarrassed because of this. I had bought into the belief that I was meant to earn enough money so I can just pay to get things done. That's a contractual model of service, and it's prevalent in our day. We outsource and pay for the dirty stuff so we don't bother other people with it. And honestly, it is nice, but there's a temptation hiding in the weeds, right out of sight. Because as we employ people to serve us, we become less and less needy. And so, as a result, we are less and less able to be served. And therefore, more and more closed off 
from the very loving communion we want. It's a tragedy. So why is this a problem? Well, it brings us to our third point. Loving communion comes through receiving service. Receiving service. I love Peter here. Everyone loves Peter. He's our favorite. Verse 6. Simon Peter says to the Lord, Lord, do you wash my feet? What I'm doing you don't understand now, Peter, but after these things you will understand. Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. In fact, in the Greek it's more emphatic. You will not wash my feet into the ages and ages. Eternally you will never wash my feet, Jesus. Peter is such a great example of the temptation leaders face. Peter is the most articulate and competent of the disciples. He is the first to confess his faith in Jesus. Peter is the one who got to be on the mountain and see the glory of God in Jesus revealed. And so Peter flails here. The passage is set up. It seems like Jesus actually starts with the other disciples washing the feet around the table and then comes to Peter at last. Peter's upset the moment Jesus comes to wash Peter's feet. Peter's fine with Jesus serving other people. Oh, people are needy. Jesus, absolutely. They need to be served. But once Jesus comes to him, oh, no. No, no, no. Why? There was something about Jesus stooping to care for the dirty, menial aspects of Peter's life that was just too much for him. Perhaps he felt it was too invasive. Perhaps he felt like it was humiliating to have his master wash his own feet. He certainly felt that Jesus was above this act and probably felt that he should have been doing it. Why didn't I get up and wash everyone's feet? Jesus, stop it. I should be doing this. It's awkward to let someone help you. Have you ever had that experience? It turns out, however then unless you have experienced the potential for feeling invaded by someone's service, for feeling embarrassed in being served, you will not know how to create loving communion through service. Instead, your service to the other person will be reckless with them. Let me just fix it for you. You will make them feel like a burden. If we are willing to serve others but not receive service, we will always keep people on the outside of our life. And in so doing, our service will be duty. Dutiful service and not hospitality. It's easy to make people into projects, to rush in and fix their issues without ever really seeing them, without ever really caring for them and what they're going through. Okay, why do I say all this? Well, first off, I I need to apologize. Um, As a leader, I really struggled to let people into the menial, dirty parts of my life. I I don't mean I have some scandal, no. Uh, What I mean is is that you've come over, I don't want you to help clean clean my bathroom. I don't want you to help do dishes after we eat together. I want to say, no, 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 don't worry about it. I don't want you to help fold our laundry. And in fact, uh, I've felt this tremendous pressure to... Keep up this posture of, I will do it for you, don't worry, up until Martha, our foster daughter, left earlier this year. The piercing grief of having to say goodbye to her uh, was enough to finally humble me 
and, and actually ask other people to pray for me. I, no, that's not my job. I pray for all of you, right? I'm the prayer. Such a delight to finally grieve in front of other people, to finally be prayed for. This is uh, certainly a personal issue on my part, but really this is also a problem for our life as a body, as an organic institution. So long as we leaders are always doing our best to compensate for the needs of those around us, to pull ministry off, we are in danger of killing the very loving communion and hospitality we are working so hard to achieve. We will kill communion so long as we insist on being the ones who are not served. And so long as a leader is overworks and anticipates and makes up for every failure or need in a community, that community starts to expect the leader to keep doing so. And so we slowly start inching more and more towards the contractual model of service. We pay Nate and Daniel and the staff to do ministry instead of Jesus' model of hospitality. We together give our lives away and, crucially, in the process, receive each other. How much better is that? How much more rich is that? The problem with Peter and with many of us in leadership is that we have not learned how to receive others in service, and so we don't know how to give ourselves as a gift. Look at verse 20 with me. This is wild. Jesus says, let me get there, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Receiving each other in this way is actually a means of God breaking his way into your life. God the Father is, by His Spirit, actually finding an inroad into your life through other people's service to give you and the other person deeper communion with Himself. That is what the Lord is doing in our midst. So can you see why Jesus insists that Peter receives this service? So, we've considered we are made for a loving communion that it comes through being hospitable and receiving one another through service, and that's a lot. So how do we do this? Well, first one again, and this is our fourth point. Loving communion comes through hope. Hope is the animating power of everything Jesus does. He knows that his hour has come. He knows that he is about to go back to God. And this is important for us, who have a lot of demands for this community, but don't want to serve. We are often afraid to serve because we think we'll miss out on good things. But what enabled Jesus to serve this way? Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Confidence to serve came from his confidence in his future with God. That God would be his dignity. That God would supply the things he really needs. This is also important for those of us who serve in very tiring ways. We take up our cross for the church because we love the church. We love the church. But, often, not because we have hope. Look at verse 8 with me. Jesus warns Peter and rebukes him, saying, if you don't let me serve you, what? You have no share with me. That is to say, 
that we are actually called to embrace a life of service and to be served because it comes with the promise of having a share with Jesus. That we actually get to have a stake in his glory. It means that the same thing it meant for Jesus. Jesus served and suffered and confronted and cared for and healed people and even died because he had real hope of being vindicated and glorified and honored with the Father. We'll actually talk about this more next week. But Jesus' hope was to share in his Father's glory, to glory in the Father and to be gloried in by the Father. Here's the wildness of the gospel. Jesus says, the same will be true for us. Let me read to you John chapter 12, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor you as you give yourself in service. And that is the hope that should drive us. The Father will honor anyone who serves Jesus both in this life and the next. There is a glory that comes from God that you are meant to long for. When we serve out of this hope, we are enabled to approach the most menial tasks, the most needy people with our whole selves on offer, because when we have this hope, we are able to receive service from others as God's gift to us. And that is the kind of cross-bearing we're called to. Hopeful cross-bearing, not dutiful cross-bearing. So practically, what does this mean? Three things, just real briefly. First, plan this week to buy extra food and invite someone over next Sunday. Someone you don't know. Invite them over and a friend or a family of friends. And then invite that new person into your friendship. And don't get a fancy piece of meat or something. Make macaroni and cheese and hot dogs, okay? Enter into relationship with them and plan. Think about it this week while you're grocery shopping. And then go and play with them. Secondly, the prayer lists I mentioned. I, I really strongly believe that as we pray, the Lord will actually begin to help us to long for these things in ourselves as well. Thirdly, this is super concrete, Sunday morning culture. Uh, Michael and Paige Swift have taken over the uh, greeting on Sundays, and they have a vision to have our culture on Sundays actually reflect this aspect of hospitality. So if you're sitting here and you have an inkling as we talk about these things, you should go to the meeting. It's June 4th, and it's between services. Uh, that is a very concrete step forward in seeing that we as a community begin to understand and embrace hospitality, even here on a Sunday morning. The good news for us this morning is that as we share ourselves with each other in serving and receiving service, our joy is not divided or drained. It's actually multiplied because the Lord himself ministers to us through each other. Let's pray.